0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country.
0: You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong.
2: They source all of these
3: ingredients. They do all of this work and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away.
1: Tune in to Meetin3, available wherever you get your podcasts.
4: thanks for joining us for this hour of eat your heartland out i'm your host capri cafaro mead is an often overlooked and misunderstood drink but in recent years it has grown in popularity especially in the midwest mead makers come to the craft from a variety of backgrounds on today's show we will meet kent waldeck a former manufacturing project manager who took his Ohio mead-making business full-time. In Wisconsin, we are introduced to Colleen Boss, who has two master's degrees in medieval history and plays in a bluegrass band. She's also the founder of Boss Meadery that blends history and music together in their mead hall. And now we welcome our first guest, Susan Rudd, founder of the Prairie Rose Meadery in North Dakota and a board member of the American Mead Makers Association. Hey, Susan, thank you so much for joining the show today. We appreciate your time.
2: Oh, I'm happy to be here.
4: Well, I have learned so much about Mead uh, throughout interviewing folks uh, such as yourself, and I know that uh, our listeners are learning a lot too, but everybody has a little bit of a different story on how they've gotten involved in, in uh, starting to make Mead. So how did you come to, to this place to make Mead?
2: Um, some friends of mine were home meat makers, and um, I tried theirs. Uh, that's a little over, back in, I think, 1996. Uh, and I, my husband and I both fell in love with it, and we were making it shortly thereafter ourselves, and it just went went from there. We've been making it ever since.
4: Oh, wow. So uh, have you been making this a full-time gig since the 90s, or no. have you been
2: doing something else? No, no. Uh, I, I work actually, I work at NDSU uh, in agricultural research. So, North Dakota uh, State? Yes, North Dakota State University. And, uh, but I've, we've been open at Prairie Rose Meter here since 2015.
4: Okay, so that's it's really been, it's gone from a passion to a business uh, in the last six years, even though it's something you've been doing for the last 25 or so, which is pretty impressive. So what kind of mead do you make? Um, You know, has that evolved over the
2: years? I I guess I've made very similar. I used to make it a little um, thicker, richer, sweeter. Uh, I try, I kind of make it more semi-sweet now. Um, A little, although it still has a huge honey presence, it's a little more like wine drinking rather than, Almost, uh, I think when I first started, I, I made it more like getting close to a liqueur, almost. Interesting. Um, but um, other than that, I, you know, I, I make just plain mead with traditional, just from honey. I make fruit. I make fruit and spice along with it. Um, made uh, caramelized honey. I've made maple and honey. I made yeah. So yeah, just a big variety. How do you come up with these flavors? It sounds like you offer, uh,
4: you know, quite a, a wide range of, of different types of uh, what sounds like, you know, in the semi-sweet range right now. But, um, you know, a lot of different flavor profiles.
2: Um, yeah, I, I guess you, you just look at what uh, what tastes good uh, when you're eating other things like fruit, you know, candies or things like that or combinations of fruit and spices that work well together, Um, And you just think about those with how they work with honey. Um, So, yeah, it's just kind of... And then friends, I'll I'll have tasted meads that other friends have made or something. And uh, like last night, I I started uh, mojito mead that a friend of mine had made and, and just asked him, do you care if I make this at the meadery? So... So uh, I can't even imagine that. I mean, I,
4: on one hand, I can because, you know, it does have a bit of a, you know, it's got the sugar, it's got the, the sort of syrupy, but w- what is a mojito meat? I mean, that really sounds like a clashing of cultures in some way.
2: Well, no, it's, it's just, I mean, you got a little bit of honey in the background, but you're going to have the lime and the mint flavors mm-hmm. on top of that. Um, kind of drinks more like a wine, almost. Wow.
4: Um so you know do you offer the same types of flavors year round or or do you go seasonal with the different types of ingredients you you have access to
2: Yeah we have we have probably six or eight that we have all the time and then we will switch around um and then you know a lot of those will end up carrying over so we'll have we'll save a few cases of each and bring them out later again yeah. so we we right now have the option of about 25 flavors. That seems like so many. I mean, when you yeah. think about even
4: wines, um, you know, they're, you know, you have different varieties and, and different blends, but, you know, even extensive commercial, you know, wineries don't have 25 different no. types. So it's, it's kind of, you know, hard to, it's a hard concept to grasp that you could have 25 different types of, of meads. I mean, give us a, an idea of the kind of spectrum of, um, you know, what you might have, particularly in the eight meads that you offer, you know, uh, pretty consistently.
2: Uh, well, our our big, biggest ones are our traditional, which is just uh, North Dakota clover honey fermented. And then uh, we have a ginger mead, uh, which hmm. is just a nice ginger and honey flavor. We actually, will actually make some mixed drinks out of that, also blending it with sour and lime. Uh, somewhat like a Moscow mule, but a little lighter. Interesting. Uh, then we have an apple, which is just made with all local North Dakota apples and honey. Uh, blackberry, we have pretty much all the time. Um, one we've we've added that we've been keeping going now for a few years is a pineapple chipotle. Whoa! Which Is um, It's not hot or anything, but it's got a nice smokiness along Uh with the pineapple from the chipotles. Um, We've got, generally have a grape one, at least one on. Right now we have both a white and a red. Let's see, Oh, our vanilla cinnamon. That's a pretty common Mm. one um, that we have. Uh, But some others that we've had that, that we probably won't make again for a while, but have been pretty good sellers in their own. Uh, But like a chocolate raspberry or a chocolate orange. Right. Uh, Let's see what else. Um, We've got uh, a triple berry, which is blackberry, raspberry, blackcurrant. I, mean, I, I could keep going. I bet. <laughs> I got, well, so so you have few. so
4: many different types and so many different types of ingredients. I mean, do you, but it sounds like you know just from the, the few that that you that you referenced that you do try to source what ingredients you can locally from North Dakota. Um, is that the case? And and how does that sort of inform the the flavors? If you you know uh, if you're trying to keep things local to North Dakota ingredients and what's grown in that type of climate.
2: Yeah, we do try to. All of our honey comes from North Dakota. Um, North Dakota is the number one honey producing state in the nation. So that, you know, getting local, really good local honey is not a problem. Now
4: that's something I did not
2: know. Wow. Yeah, yeah, our our beekeepers, uh, generally, uh, they have a a fairly decent growing season here. And, you know, a lot of clover, a lot of uh, sunflower, alfalfa fields that flower, a long time, so mm-hmm. we do we do well there. But then they also um, actually take their bees south for the winter. So they are getting. uh <laughs> I've never heard know. of that.
4: So it's like yep. you know, you know, birds that fly south for the winter. People beekeepers take their bees south. I mean, I guess that does make some sense. Yeah. So they don't that, die in the freeze.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it is hard to keep, especially large quantities of bees during the winter here. Um, so our our uh, apiary calls himself a medium sized apiary. He has about twelve thousand hives. So um, uh, there are a few apiaries in in the state that have one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand hives. So wow, that's a lot of bees. Yeah, that amazes uh, I, I, me. I
4: gotta I gotta admit that intimidates me. I'm scared. I, I get scared of one bee. Not to mention whatever one hundred fifty thousand <laughs> hives of them. My goodness.
2: <laughs> uh, for the for the most part, honey bees are fairly mellow. And as long as you leave them alone, they won't bother you. Well,
4: I don't. I don't think I'm going to try to experiment and find that out. <laughs> but I, I will. I will uh, in, imbibe in some of this this honey based mead, which which all yeah. sounds uh, totally uh, in, incredible. Um, I, I want to turn a minute to the fruits because um, it's my understanding that you know you use all natural fruits and no extracts, which right. has to really preserve uh, that. Uh, you know uniqueness and freshness in your flavors.
2: Yeah, I, I do think you get a little more freshness out of. Um, and We will, like I said, we buy local, so it's fresh fruit. Sometimes we do end up freezing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, we have a lot of local fr- uh, fruits, like in the midsummer choke cherries, which are a really small yeah. cherry. That's that's very common to North Dakota. Uh, strawberries will grow here, and so. I don't know if you've ever been up north. We have a you know, a lot of desserts that are strawberry rhubarb, mm-hmm. so we do we do have a mead that's a strawberry rhubarb. Awesome. Mead. Um, let's see what else. Do uh, our grapes are local grown grapes. Uh, so, like a Marquette is a in mm-hmm. a Marquette grape, and our Frontenac we've got um, for. Uh, A pink, uh, our white grape is Prairie Star. These are all northern grown grapes. I think a lot like the Marquette and the Prairie Star for sure are University of Minnesota releases from their um, vineyards. So we got that. Um, Our honey, uh, our maple one is Minnesota maple syrup. I see. uh North Dakota, but that's you know just our neighbors here. Yeah, right there. Um,
4: We make a lot of maple in Ohio
2: as well. I've got an apricot that is all made with little apricots that grow locally. Gosh, I had no idea that, that there was so much bounty
4: uh in yeah. in North Dakota it's it's one of the few states left that i have not been to and i am am absolutely dying to go to the dakotas which you know you're giving me even more of a reason to uh you know cross north dakota off my list i, I want to ask a a question to circle back to something that you said at the beginning uh about the fact that you know you are at north dakota state university and you teach i believe in did you say agronomy or agriculture and if you know which leads me to believe at least that you have you know a level of expertise in in agriculture has that you know background and experience uh, has that uh, informed your approach to mead making and, and ingredients gathering and and you know the production and the process.
2: Uh, yeah, I would say yes. I have a master's in microbiology. Oh wow! Um, I, I don't teach; I do uh, lab research. I see, so, um, but yeah, I, I and even making it the the protocols that you would follow in the research in the lab. Uh, you know, those all are very easy to me for making the mead. Um, I, I also grew up on a farm in North Dakota. So mm-hmm. just having, I have a, you know, a wide range of knowledge of what does grow in the state. So
4: that has to help to be able to, you know, time out uh, when you're going to make certain things, how you're going to be able to access those ingredients. And, you know, so much of, of uh, I think, you know, particularly the Midwest st- story, but um you know the American story is uh, when it comes to to uh to food and culinary is really that marriage between agriculture and and sort of the finished product for the consumer and trying to close that gap, having folks understand you know where things actually come from that they consume is part of our mission on eat your heartland out, trying to put all those pieces together so people you know can have an appreciation of um, what goes into making a product like mead or cider or cheese or anything else. Um, so this is, this is really, uh, as I said, uh, I've learned you know, quite a lot from, from you and, and from so many others that I've talked to in all of this. Now, I know that um, you have a tasting room. Um, is that right?
2: Yes. Yep. We have a tasting room. You could come in and and we do some sample flights. We do by the glass. We have uh, bottles to go or drink here. Um, And then we have some cheese and salami plates, things like that also.
4: Do you do any special pairings uh, for, you know, uh, like they do with wine and cheese, for example?
2: We've done a few. uh, We've done more dessert and mead pairings. Ah, Um, right. We did a chocolate, Valentine's Day last two years ago, I guess. We did a chocolate and mead pairing. That was fun. Um, And we've done, yeah, just various, more of the desserts. Um, And then I'm planning on doing just a honey tasting. So we'll do the honeys along and then have some meads with them.
4: Wow. Now, and and I guess COVID hasn't necessarily slowed you guys down too much because uh, North Dakota is is generally open.
2: Yes, we, we've been generally open, although um, it has definitely slowed down. Uh, mm-hmm. e- even though we're open, people really don't want to come out, um, right. which I perfectly understand. Um, uh, it, it's definitely a different culture from a, you know a year and a half ago. Are you doing, uh, you know, uh, order pickups or, you know, virtual tastings yeah. or any of those other things? I, I have done a lot of um, – I haven't done virtual tastings. We've thought about doing that. Um, we we do sell a lot more online sales. I've mm-hmm. done a, that seems to be a theme. That seems to be a theme. Those are way up. Uh, we we do have a lot more pickups. You know, people will just call in order and pick it up Um at the store, things like that. Um, throughout the fall, we had an outdoor tasting room. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that's a little bit cold. Right? I have thought. <laughs> I have thought about because we have some heaters. But I've thought about doing a, a winter tasting out on the patio. <laughs> I don't know how well that'll go over, though. It's uh, the the Midwestern winters are sometimes yep. uh, unforgiving. That's for sure. Ah, uh, but we're hardy folk up here.
4: That's right. Well, look, I, I'm the, I'm the midst of the snow belt uh, off the Great Lakes here in Northeastern Ohio. So I feel you. I mean, the upper Midwest has its own special, uh, snow, uh, yeah. <laughs> relationship with snow, but we down here, we get, we get pummeled as well. So yeah, I, I know it's a, a tough time to try to, you know, take events outdoors. Um, and I, I just want to ask one final question, um, because it's one of the things that, that drew me to, um, reaching out to you because, um, you know, you are a board member of the American Meat Makers Association, something that I didn't know existed. Uh, and obviously these kind of national associations are really, you know, the, the standard bearers of, you know, best practices for the industry. Um, you know, uh, exchanging ideas, uh, networking and really having a pulse on, you know, what's next in the world of meat. Um, so, uh, how long have you been on the board and, and, you know, what are you, what are your, um, uh, activities and, and role uh, that you play uh, on this national, in this national role?
2: Um, well, I've been on the American Meat Makers Association board uh, for about three years. Um, I am their, uh, currently their secretary. Uh, oh, very nice. Our, uh, I guess a lot of our role this last past year, two years, has been a lot of going trying to do legislative issues. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to get mead more known um we're currently right in we we had you know before covid we had uh, uh, an executive director that did a lot of our our you know in inside stuff but uh we she she was laid off and then now we are in starting to rehire for that so we we do we're doing annually a uh, convention and um Mead Taste or Mead Competition, along with the uh, Maser Cup, which is it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing a lot of that stuff, uh, trying to think of what else we're doing. It's <laughs> kind of, should have listed all those, I, I would think of it better. But yeah, l- right now, I would say the our biggest thing has been legislative
4: yeah that makes sense what what kind of things are you' advocating for um nationally as well as I would assume at the state level uh, since so much of the the uh you know alcohol related laws and tourism issues and production issues and ag issues uh you know are, are usually in the state house
2: yeah mostly our stuff has been federal uh because oh, interesting. There are, well because the every state is different right you know, in, in recovery so that's that a uh, you know i think you know a lot more of the local people need to cover but uh, right. Our biggest one was getting the craft beverage act uh, mm-hmm. passed and making sure mead was included for taxes, tax purposes. That tax You guys thing. pull it off. Yes, that did go through. That's great. And I think that's became a permanent law now. Uh, it was, was it kept being forwarded annually as a temporary law, but I, I believe that's permanent
4: now. Well, as as a former lawmaker myself in the state of Ohio, you're speaking my language, uh, and and I spent years on the on the Senate Agriculture Committee uh, in in the Ohio Senate. So um, I dealt with all kinds of these regulatory issues, uh, particularly for craft beer, uh, for yeah. wine, uh, so viticulture related yeah. issues, um, you know, and, and uh, alcohol derived products. So uh, it's great to see advocacy in work, and I think it's also good, as I was saying before, about you know. The, trying to give people a sense of how agriculture, uh, you know, and everything that is sort of behind the scenes to producing something that we consume. It's also important to recognize that there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, having a a food-based or, you know, a a consumer-based business when you're in sort of the food and drink space. And uh, you've highlighted that perfectly because uh, without, you know, advocacies like your organization, you know, people get left out in the cold.
2: Yep, and and I guess one of the other issues we are working, but that's more more regulatory with the TTB, uh, tobacco, what is it, alcohol, tobacco, and trade yep. bureau, mm-hmm. um, is just even in labeling uh, because yeah. they we license as being a winery, and right? When you then you have all these regulations to say what wine can and can't do, but mead just doesn't fit into all of these. So there's been a lot of issues of what we can and can't put on our labels, and they'll want us to put it on the labels in a way that you look at and say, this just doesn't even make sense. Right. (laughs) And so um, we have had uh, good progress in that. Uh, When I first opened, you could only put mead on the label if it was a traditional mead, which was just honey wine. Um, since then now, any place where you could say, uh, cherry, honey, wine, you can say cherry mead or, you know, things like that. So they've, they've at least went to, if we could say honey, wine, we can call it mead. Um, as long as it's not over 14% alcohol, then, yeah, then it's a whole nother argument. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So that's an ongoing, ongoing processes.
4: Wow, well, I, I certainly have have my eyes have been open on some of the regulatory issues uh, that are, are surrounding mead makes total sense. Um, and I think we all will have a greater appreciation and all the work that goes into uh, drinking mead, whether it's yours from north Dakota or or across uh, the United States, um, we really are very thankful for you joining us today. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Oh, I appreciate it. and thanks for having me on.
1: This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
4: Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. Now we are joined by Kent Waldeck, founder of Crafted Artisan Meadery in Mogador, Ohio. Kent, I'm really excited to have you on the show uh, today, Eat Your Heartland Out. And um, I got to say, I'm even more excited than, than most, not that I don't love all of my guests, but... Uh, you are from Ohio, not very far from from where I'm at, probably about 35 minutes west of, of where I am at in northeastern Ohio. And you and your story on local cable news is actually what inspired me to do this episode on Mead. So thank you for for that, because now we got a whole episode <laughs> talking about Mead.
5: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
4: <laughs> well, let's jump right in. Uh, you know, Mead is something that a lot of people kind of know about conceptually, but maybe have never had. Um, so, you know, it makes me curious how you got interested in making mead. Um, how, how'd you
1: end up here?
5: Yeah, so I actually started off homebrewing beer. And funny enough, I'd, I'd never even really heard of mead. And this was back in the mid-2000s, early 2000s. Um, and uh, I came across mead in the, in the appendix of the joy of homebrewing. And Cause you're reading
4: the appendix weirdo.
5: (laughs) Right. Exactly. And you know, I, I will full disclosure say I wasn't the best home brewer of beer. So I figured I'd give this, this mead stuff a shot. And uh, that led to, you know, buying our first, the first honey that I'd used for mead down in North Carolina. I was living there at the time. And uh, that's, that's what got me going. And uh, you know, little by little, we, we experimented more and, and, here we are,
4: and you switched careers entirely, right?
5: Yes. So I, I had uh, before going all in in about 2015 with the metery. I had about a 12 year career in uh, product management, uh, international marketing, uh, in, with different consumer goods and and manufacturing companies, uh, and and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to make a make a living so far, <laughs> knock on wood, uh, at this, uh, you know, for the past five, six years now.
4: And, you know, it's a it's a great story because so many people, you know, in our region and, and across the country, but particularly in northeast Ohio, you know, have uh had to to pivot for lack of a better term. It's right. more that I can't stand. But I can't think of any other word at this uh, juncture, right this minute. But right. the fact that you were able to, you know, make this leap is is great. Um, and you know, I, I'm I'm curious. Then, so you now you're making mead. You've made it sort of a full time career for the last five or six years. Um, what does one experience when they get your mead? How do you combine? you know, history, agriculture, culinary aspects. I I know that you try to bring so many things together in the alchemy of Mead.
5: Yeah. Um, and, and that's really what drew me to Mead is, uh, there's this rich history. It's the world's oldest fermented beverage, right? It dates back to 9,000 BC. Um, it, there's this huge agricultural component of it because not only are we using honey um, from the honeybees, we're also using fruits, herbs, spices, and, you know, part of the process of how we go about making the styles of mead that we make is finding those, the, the right source for those ingredients. Um, and, and when we, when we, create styles and that's something that we do a lot uh we we have a really you know innovation's a a cornerstone of how we go about doing what we do so we're constantly coming out with something new um it's it's how do we deliver unique flavor experiences while also kind of backing up against Culinary traditions, recipes, desserts, and things like that. Um, also, you know, interesting fruit, herb, spice combinations. In addition to this overarching theme across all of it uh, of, of honey, um, it's exciting to, to kind of you know play in all those different spaces. Um, I think people when they when they try our mead can expect something that's one really unique and two. It's really going to deliver a a flavor experience that, that's not going to be, you know, we have some things that are nuanced, but our theme is that we really want to uh, have a strong impact with our flavors.
4: So would you say your philosophy is, you know, innovation and uh, maybe um, experimentation as well?
5: Yes, I, I think innovation is, is important to any, any company, no matter what you do, I feel. And it's, it's rather ironic, you know, when we're dealing with the oldest category and alcoholic beverages mm-hmm. to talk about innovation. And, and that's, what's so interesting about mead is that it is this rich tradition history. Every major culture has had it as their predominant fermented beverage throughout civiliz- civilization civilization. Right. Um, and, you know, to innovate in that space is kind of a it's it's kind of a cool thing because it is although it is the oldest, it's I would argue it's the least known about today.
4: No question. Like I said at the beginning of our chat, I mean, I didn't really even think of me as I was putting together this, you know, series of episodes for this season. You know, I was cider and wine and beer and spirits and then you came along on <laughs> on spectrum news 1 and i was like mead okay like you know i you know we think about vikings we think about you know medieval times and uh literally and the ridiculous you know uh jousting place that you go to <laughs> as right. a kid um that so it serves you fake mead which is probably bud light who knows what it is <laughs> and and uh and so you know i it just really piqued my interest because i don't even know you know, in my head, if I know what mead would, would potentially taste like. And so I know you guys have a lot of different flavors. Mm -hmm. Um, so give us a little bit of a synopsis of the wide variety of types of mead that you produce, um, you know, on a seasonal basis.
5: Yeah. So we, we have three year round meads that we produce year all the time. And that's, uh, you know, in addition to that, every month we come out with something new, um, and we really try to hit the gamut of, of the, the category. And that's one thing that, you know, again, mead, the oldest category out there, um, we suffer a bit in that people oftentimes talk of mead so esoterically and that, <laughs> oh yes, I've had mead before, or I don't like mead or I like mead. And, and I always argue that's like saying you've tried some obscure, you know, uh, adjunct uh, IPA, jalapeno IPA. And, and if you want to bounce that up against the beer world, right? And saying, oh, I don't like beer, you know? Right. Um, and mead is a category in of itself. And mead can be dry, it can be sweet, and it can be sparkling, it can be still like a wine. Um, and and so really, when we go about creating this, this pipeline of innovation that we bring to the market, it, it's about trying to show people what mead can be. And, you know, if you look at those, those cornerstones of foundational things of what we do, one is innovation, but two is education because so little is known by folk from, you know, uh, folks about mead. And so we have a lot of work to do in educating people as well.
4: Yeah. Well, you're, you're certainly educating me and, you know, uh, everyone else that I've had an opportunity to talk to in this process, which you know are also getting introduced to our listeners in this episode, uh, really has been you know eye opening on what it means to to be mead. Um, where else do you get? Where do you get your ingredients?
5: Um, we get our ingredients from all over, um, and and you know our honey, which is we go through about thirty five thousand pounds of honey a year.
3: That's a lot of honey.
5: <laughs> it is. Um, it, it, our honey comes from. Uh, central Pennsylvania from a company called Dutch gold. We Uh also, we also procure our honey from smaller, more regional, uh, beekeepers. And that's when we get into our different varietals of honey, um, that, uh, you know, uh, I just ordered meadow foam honey from a small beekeeper in Oregon, for example. Um, yeah. And, and so that's one thing, you know, we, we try to, purchase our, our ingredients as local as we can, but at the same time, we're not going to die on that sword. I'm a firm believer in, um, and, and the same can be said with, with our, you know, our meads. I want people to buy our meads, one, because they're local um, and that's great, but I want them to buy our meads because they're really, really good and they're of right. the utmost highest quality. And so you know, if we can't find the right quality of ingredient locally, you know, we'll have to reach out a little further. And that's, you know, blueberries, for example, you know, the the coast of Lake Michigan is a great place to buy blueberries. Yeah. Maybe Ohio's not.
4: So uh, l- let me ask, uh, let me go back to honey if I can. Yeah. Um, and and ask, again, this is my naivete about mead and, and frankly about different honey varietals, but how, maybe you can explain sort of the different taste uh aspects of uh what different types of honey bring to the table if that makes sense
5: right uh i think it's important you know to back up a a step there is When you talk about mead, I mean obviously our primary fermentable is it's honey, right? And so just like you have wine grapes, just like you have different malts and hops used in beer, um, different cider apple varietals and cider, we too in the mead world have different varietals of honey, Um, right?
4: And I guess I you know not a lot of people think about that there's so many different varietals of honey. I mean you kind of you know maybe think of an orange blossom honey, you know maybe one or two different things, but you don't realize the depth and breadth of different types of honey varietals <laughs> right. exist. At least right. I didn't until I got into this whole thing.
5: Yes. And, and that's, you know, everybody to, oftentimes when they think of honey, they just think of the uh, honey and the honey bear from the store. And, <laughs> right. Um. it's, it's so much more than that. And, you know, wildflower is the most common where you've got bees just foraging across, you know, all the floral sources, nectar sources in an area, but then you have single varietal honeys. So you mentioned orange blossom where, They actually are putting hives out into uh, orange groves when the uh, orange blossoms pop on the trees. And when the blossoms fall off, they pull the hives out and extract the honey and they have, you know, uh, orange blossom honey. And and there's from avocado blossom to orange blossom to meadow foam, you know, and buckwheat, which is dark like molasses. And every one of those honeys can range in you know, color from almost transparent white to dark like molasses and flavors and aromas are all different. It, it's really wild once you kind of go down that path.
4: Wow. So, um, give, give me an example maybe of, uh, one that you, use, one type of honey that is on the lighter side or one on the darker side. I know I'm gratefully, I'm greatly simplifying this whole thing, but yeah. the, you know, sort of what that, what that tastes like in your mead when you use these different type of varietals.
5: Yes, so uh, Tupelo Honey would be a great uh, example of a lighter style of honey. And Tupelo wait, van, isn't
4: that a Neil Young yeah, album? It's slash, uh, van, like, Morrison, van, van Morrison. Van Morrison. Yep. There you go. Um,
5: so, so it actually uh, comes from the Apalachicola River or Apalachicola River. Basin, I believe, or something like that, in the Panhandle of Florida, and they will. When the tupelo gum trees, it's a type of a gum tree, when they when they blossom, they'll haul the hives out on floating barges to gather the honey. And when the blossoms fall off, they extract. You know, they pull their honey back, the 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 hives back off the barges, and they have uh, a pure tupelo honey. Um, and you can you can have. The other end of the spectrum where Tupelo honey is very light and very, uh, delicate and one of the most sought after honeys in the world. Um, you also have on the other end, the buckwheat honey, which is again, dark molasses, minerally, it's a love it or hate it kind of a thing. Um, you know, we, we use buckwheat in some meads, but it can be almost overpowering. Whereas Tupelo honey is just the most, it's an amazing honey. It's absolutely awesome.
4: Wow. Well, you know, since you're so close by to me, um, you know, maybe some of our other Ohio listeners are, are, you know, checking this out and and have the chance to uh, access your mead. Um, I know you're not far away and I know, you know, your your stuff is sold at some of our local grocery store chains, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have a tasting room as I just said, you do wholesale. When we first talked um, before off air, I recall, you know, you were getting a lot of calls and people were coming in for curbside pickup in, you know, Corona times. That's, that is, you know, part and parcel of, yes. of uh, what it means to do business these days. Yep. Um, so, you know, what's, what's on the horizon for, for you since you're doing so many different types of, you know, ways to get this mead to, to market.
5: Yeah, so to hit on a few of those things, uh, one, on the wholesale side, we work with distributors currently in about 13 states. Nice. We're getting, we're getting, yeah, thank you. And we're getting ready to add uh, a few more this year uh, as well. Um, and that's that's always great. It just makes it so much more accessible for folks when they can go, obviously, down the street and pick it up at their local craft beer store. Um, and that's an interesting thing about Mead is you'll often find it in the craft beer aisle next to the ciders, maybe, and not necessarily the wine aisle. Um even but
4: though the, it's legally wine in, yes, in most
5: places. Yes. Yeah. We're legally where we are considered wine, but so isn't a cider. Uh, so right. it's, it's, you know, we, we kind of, it's, it's a weird place we fit in, but it's kind of nice to be in the weird place. Right. <laughs> um, so the uh, curbside pickup has been huge for us this past year. And we expect that to continue. Um, you know, the, the, really the, the big thing on the horizon, I think is, and, and not just on the horizon, but what we've seen this past year is online. Um, Mm. We have uh, an online store with the ability to ship to 38 states uh, directly. And that grew, uh, you know, over 150% this past year. Um, And we have a club platform that's out there as well. And that's one of the trends that, you know, especially with wine, our shipping laws are a bit less stringent than some of the other alcohol categories. Um, And so it's been a phenomenal thing to, especially during these tough times, to see Folks that have really supported us over the past year, and and I think that'll continue into 2021 as well. The big thing that we're excited about is we do have a tasting room today, but it's rather small. Um, we are working on a new space that uh, we, you know, it's still not a done deal, but uh, we're we're slowly working towards this um, that will give us about 12,000 square feet. And uh, about half of that would be dedicated to a, a tap room with, you know, guest beers on tap in addition mm-hmm. to our meads and food. And um, it would be in a historic space that's nearby where we're at today. Awesome. Um, and so we love
4: to do that in the Midwest. Yes. You know, repurpose our buildings, bring them new life. Exactly. From what once was
5: exactly, so I, we're we're really really excited about, it. and again, I, I can't share too much because it's not sure. really a, a done deal yet. But I I think we'll know here soon, within the next month or so. So super exciting.
4: Well, I'm certainly wishing you the best of luck. Keeping my eye peeled on you and and your mead, um, both right here in, in our backyard, northeastern Ohio, as well as uh, as you continue to grow uh, your presence across the country. Kent, thanks so much for joining me today on Eat Your Heartland Out. Our final guest this hour is Colleen Boss, who takes us to her meadery in Madison, Wisconsin. Colleen, thanks so much for joining the program today. Oh, thank you, I was uh, very pleased to be asked. Well, we're excited to have you on the show because you have a really cool background. Um, you have two master's degrees in medieval history and we're talking mead today. And a lot of people um, you know, don't know a whole lot about mead, but often associated with Vikings and medieval times and these sort of things. Has your background in medieval history influenced your desire to start to make mead?
3: Uh, you know, absolutely, these things are related. And I, I have to tell you that when you have two master's degrees in medieval history, you are so excited when you find a way to use that as an adult. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet.
3: But, uh, you know, I think my background, the reason I originally got into history is because I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted mm-hmm. to write books about history and have them be accurate. And I think what I got out of my history degrees in terms of Mead, is just an appreciation for the story of Mead, the romance of the history, both the the real history and also the literature. mm. And I love looking back at the history even going beyond the Middle Ages because there's some very er- early archaeological evidence to suggest that Mead dates back to at least six thousand BC in China Wow and and was probably widely enjoyed by more people in kind of ancient history than in medieval history. But as you pointed out, the, the Vikings in particular were associated with mead for a long time, longer than most regions. And it, I think the Scandinavian countries did actually produce mead much longer than other areas did.
4: Well, see, this is exactly why having somebody like you as, as part of this episode is so important, because you give a different perspective, and you bring that different perspective as well to your passion for mead making, and, but also bringing it into... Uh, the twenty first century. So, do do you incorporate your historic knowledge to guide your mead production, or, um, you know, do do you kind of cast that to the side, leave that to the storytelling, and, um, you know, use the more modern technology to to make your mead.
3: Yeah, I, I think I in, use my, my love for chemistry and my knowledge of food and and some of my training as a commercial brewer a lot more than I use my, my <laughs> mead history, <laughs> um, as much as I love that. And I do love honoring the history of mead. Uh, our motto is actually mead made modern. Love it. Yeah, I feel like people... Commercially, aren't trying to recreate ancient wine or ancient beer very much.
4: It's probably pretty nasty by modern standards, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've learned so much about making these, um, you know, fermentations efficient and clean and bringing out really elegant flavors. And I think mead, as cool as the history is, deserves the best of what modern fermentation can offer. So I basically want to be the person who has the most ancient beverage in the world made in the most modern possible way.
4: So what can we expect um, if we were to, you know, show up in, in your meadery, um, you know, as far as the kind of meads that you make, I've learned in talking to folks like yourself and putting together this, this episode that, you know, mead really sort of uh, has a, a real spectrum of flavor, sweet to dry. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, of complexity uh, in mead. Um, so what do you have on offer?
3: Yeah, I, I focus on making dry and sparkling meads. Mm. Um, and what I like about those is that they tend to be a little lighter on the palate which allows me to be sort of an everyday beverage instead of kind of that rare dessert drink. And and I do make a couple of still meads, I should mention that. It really depends on the style and what flavors I'm trying to highlight, but I I don't make any sweet meads. And and that's just my taste. I really mm. like dry wines, I really like dry beers. And people often think of mead as sweet and there are a lot of great mead makers out there, some really excellent ones who are making sweet meads and there aren't as many making dry meads. And uh, I should add, though, that the commercial mead landscape is changing really fast. Lots of new meaderies are opening all the time. So what I say today could be potentially not accurate two years from now. But I really didn't see many dry meads on the market, and I really just wanted to make what I liked.
4: Well, it sounds like th- that is definitely something that I would like as well. I mean, I definitely skew a little bit drier, uh, from, for my beverages too. One of the things that is really cool about mead from, you know, talking to, to other folks such as yourself is the, you know, the different flavors that are incorporated into mead, whether they're, you know, obviously honey is a big aspect of it, but, you know, f- um, fruits and, and things of that nature. Um, what do you incorporate into your meads? Uh, you know, the different ingredients and how do you source them? How important is is, you know, getting locally sourced ingredients uh, incorporated into your mead making? That's such a
3: great question. And th- as you pointed out, the honey is so important, even though there are other ingredients. And my biggest focus in sourcing honey is local. And we start, you know, with with the honey. We focus on getting good local honey because honey is, more than a lot of foods I can think of, really such a direct representation of the landscape it comes from. And in this
4: case, it's Wisconsin.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and for example, the very simplest kind of honey is wildflower honey, which kind of just means we don't know where the bees went, they pollinated all kinds of things. But wildflower honey in Wisconsin tastes completely different than wildflower honey in California, for example, where it's makes sense. Totally different landscape. Yeah, exactly. And then in addition to using Wisconsin wildflower honey, we also use different varietals of honey, which basically just means we know where the bees went. Um, The bees went to, okay, with cranberry blossom honey, they went to the cranberry bogs and they pollinated those flowers. And what they brought back was this honey that's tart and reddish and very reflective of what you would probably expect from a cranberry blossom honey. And the mead tastes completely different from a wildflower honey mead. So we really focus on celebrating Wisconsin as much as possible. Like people talk about farm to table eating all over the country now. And I think that's a pretty common concept. We're interested in what I call field to glass drinking. We want that experience of the Wisconsin countryside to actually come through in the glass of mead that, that you're drinking so you can taste that. But we, I mean, obviously there's other things besides honey too. We, you know, focus on Wisconsin varietals like buckwheat and clover and cranberry. But when we come to sourcing other flavors, we start by looking at what we can get around us. And so we have a a cherry mead. And that was kind of an easy one because Door County cherries from northern Wisconsin are, are a big deal. People come a long way to check out the Door County cherries. So we like being able to celebrate that in the mead. And we're also able to get hops locally and mm-hmm. just wherever we can. We have, you know, local farmers who will say, "Hey, I've got a bunch of watermelons. Do you want to make a watermelon mead?" Wow. And then we get, you know, creative with that.
4: <laughs> that's something I'd love to try. I mean, watermelon mead that uh, definitely sounds refreshing for the summertime. For yeah. sure.
3: Yeah, we actually mixed that one with a little bit of local Thai basil, um, which is probably Ooh. an unexpected choice, but it was just brought out this nice, light herbal um, quality that balanced well with the. Ma- the melon and the Wisconsin wildflower honey—it was, it was beautiful. We've gotten a lot of requests to do that one over again.
4: I would totally sign up to request that as well. Do you, because you source everything, you know, kind of locally, or at least most everything that you can? Do you, you know, really go through and, and have cycle through seasonal flavors, or do you have consistent flavors that are always available and on tap? Um, you know, if if I were to come and visit you, what what would I expect from from the tap room? Little bit of both.
3: We have um, six flavors that we try to keep available all year round. And then other parts of the year, we're just having fun. But we do have a couple <laughs> of seasonals. Um, in the spring, we always bring out our Equinox mead, which is a blend of rosé grape juice, uh, clover honey, and a little bit of lavender. Ooh. And it's just gosh, like I'm
4: just like so. I love hearing these. Not to cut you off, but <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, no, wow. You know, I mean, like these the the level of creativity that goes into creating some of these these flavors is just unbelievable. I mean, how do you do? You, you said you're just sort of like having fun. I mean, do you? How much do you actually experiment until you get that perfect combination?
3: Well. I'm going to say I, I travel and I eat a lot <laughs> and I am constantly <laughs> Two thinking, very
4: good things uh, to using
3: do. those things for inspiration. And I've gotten better over the years at getting an inspiration and turning it right away into a mead that you'd want to drink. But that also came after some painstaking years <laughs> of just experimenting with crazy ideas, some of which turned out well and some of which were absolutely atrocious. <laughs>
4: I feel like that's like a lot of things in cooking and I have the same thing when it, cause I, I'm a baker, uh, in, in my hobbies. And, and I, I know that from, you know, playing with different flavors, you have to not be afraid to fail, um, which is, which is sometimes deflating, but you got to try.
3: Yeah. I made a mead once. I thought this would be really cool with beets and cloves, and it was just awful. <laughs> it was so earthy. It was just overpoweringly like beets and earth. And the poor honey was struggling under the weight of all of that. <laughs> but you've got to make your beet and clove honey before you get to your really elegant uh, equinox spring mead. <laughs> you got to put in your time.
4: <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I I definitely, That um, sounds like it's a good one that you probably, you know, shelved. Um, but so, uh, you know, what I'm really curious about as well, because, you know, we're talking about all of these incredible flavors and this, you know, everything coming locally. Um, I know that, you know, you started, uh, out selling wholesale so you, but you didn't really get you know when you sell something wholesale you're just sort of passing it along you don't get that immersive experience that you would in a tasting room now you have you you opened a tasting room um, that I know attracts visitors from all over um, and you know you also are in a bluegrass band and these two things kind of go together so <laughs> how did the bluegrass band and the music inspire? how the tasting room evolved into a music venue.
3: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because they're, they're definitely sort of interconnected, but they started out as separate things. I mean, I was in a band for a long time before I even started the business and it didn't instantly occur to me that there would be any overlap there. And then, I mean, as you said, we were just doing wholesale bottle sales and I I really struggled with the education factor Mm -hmm. because people just don't know what mead is. And even if they do, it's like, oh, yeah, my uncle made a terrible batch of mead once and we all hated it. Or, oh, yeah, isn't it that super sweet thing that people drink on Game of Thrones or something? Yeah, And you sort of have to have a place to sort of let people come and and actually be able to talk to you and, you know, guide them through. And the people who want to explore things like that, the sort of beer and wine tourists that we get from Chicago and Iowa and the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. they're usually really adventuresome people. and And they just, you know, love being able to try these different things. Well, it turns out one of the things they also love is having some live music around. And so, you know, I had gotten into playing live music or playing mandolin just because I loved bluegrass music. And I thought it would be really fun to be able to participate in it on another level. And I had a lot of friends who were musicians and... it it all just kind of spontaneously started to happen where, you know, my band would play the taproom or, you know, my buddy with his guitar would come down and play. And what we all learned is that we got a really fun audience from the taproom and it really enhanced the experience of people who were there primarily to try mead. Then it was like, Oh, we traveled from Chicago and not only did we try this cool new thing, this mead, But we got to listen to this great band and it it just started to make us, I think, a little bit of a destination for people.
4: Uh, I'm frankly pretty mad that I didn't know about you guys when I came and visited. I was in Wisconsin and we did kind of a road trip all over the place um, about a year and a half ago. And had I known you existed, I would have absolutely taken a pit stop because it sounds like my cup of mead, uh, right? (laughs) Um, And I always ask this question to folks um, as I talk about, you know, whether it's cider or wine or beer, and in this case, mead, about pairing you know the the beverage with you know food, but I think more importantly in this case, I want to know if you've ever paired music and mead together. Do you, have you ever had a pairing uh, that's been on offer for folks that are visiting uh, the ta- the tap room and the and the venue?
3: Oh yes, <laughs> this is actually one of my favorite things, and it started <laughs> um, back in January two thousand fourteen as much as I, you know, play bluegrass and love bluegrass, I'm kind of a, you know, an old school metalhead at heart.
4: (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Nobody expects it from me, but I am very much, I am, I am an old school metalhead too.
3: Right on. (laughs) So it was January, 2014. It's bitterly cold. It's Wisconsin in the winter. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it would be super fun. What if we had a Mead and Metal Fest? And we got all into it. We encouraged people to dress up as Vikings. We had a beard judging competition and we gave prizes for the best metal beard and the best Viking beard. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we actually had a, a, I don't know what it's called, a beard wearers club here in, in Madison and they helped us put that on. And oh my gosh. It was just so popular. Everybody had such a great time. We had a packed house, the bands were outstanding. And you know, I think the the richer, hardier meads pair nicely with metal
4: would i would I would imagine,
3: <laughs> but we we didn't stop there, obviously, I had to give uh, my bluegrass community a little shout out, so then we added in a spring festival where we released our equinox mead, and it was you know sunshine and bouncy rhythms and lighter meads, and it was also just a joyous pairing. <laughs>
4: Both of those events sound fantastic. Um, very different, but uh, very evocative of the seasons. And I think rightfully so evocative of the flavors that you would be um, offering during during those times of year. Any other really interesting music? Because I know that Madison has a kind of eclectic music scene. Who else uh, would would uh, show up um, to play a show at, at the uh, venue?
3: I mean, we, we are really, really eclectic, and we, we got to be well-known for being a venue that was really kind to musicians. And so we get everything from the local marimba player to you know, queer punk bands to you know, blues and metal and anything you can possibly imagine. And our goal is always just to make everyone in the audience and in the band feel welcome and safe and part of our family. And as a result of that, I mean, we've had some really rowdy bands, there is a local (laughs) metal band that actually swings from our rafters every time they play. And we've never had a crowd get out of control or misbehave. And I think mead just kind of makes people happy. And it's expensive enough that people don't tend to really overindulge. And it's just kind of a healthy, happy music audience.
4: Well, I, that's, that's a great place to, uh, to start to wrap up our conversation because it's so positive. It's so uplifting. And it's been such a tough time over the last year or so with COVID. And I'm sure that given, you know, the circumstances that, you know, the, the lights have been off and maybe it's been a little bit more quiet, uh, in the venue, um, over the last year or so, just due to, to safety concerns. But, what do we have on the horizon, um, you know, at when things go back to normal, uh, so to speak? Um, what can we expect from you guys uh, in, in the years, months and years to come? Yeah, well,
3: we've got some really fun things on the horizon, both short term and long term. I mean, right now, we're very much living in the moment. We have uh, created some meat and chocolate pairings that people can do from home. Yum. And, you know, fun things like that. But we also, this is a big one that we're we're really um, putting a lot of emphasis on and are very excited about. But a local uh, production group, some creative folks, uh, German and Dana here locally, they work for or they run Folk U Productions. They have ordered... Um, organized a big Valentine's Day live stream with a few oh, wow. local venues. There'll be 12 bands throughout the day and the bands and the technical folks are volunteering their time and the proceeds from the live stream, from you know money people donate, will go to the venues, which we are just beyond touched by.
4: That's such, huge. That's because venues love. have been really left behind, and so and and the and the live music industry, um, even more so than other aspects of the entertainment industry, have really been you know ignored, and, in my humble opinion, neglected. Um, as you know, our policymakers have been considering a lot of these relief packages. We don't hear a lot about live music, and I know that it's one of the hardest-hit industries, so that's wonderful to hear that communities come together. That's so Midwestern as well, in my opinion.
3: <laughs> I totally agree. And then, you know, I only a couple months from now, I think we're going to be into the kind of spring weather where we can have uh, live music out of doors, even if it's not, you know, time yet to do it indoors. And we're looking forward to having some patio shows uh, spring and summer. And then when things get back to normal, the fun thing is, People have been coming to me with a million ideas about fun music things we can do at the Mead Hall once we're back. So right now, the number one plan is for sea shanty night at the Mead Hall, someday when life is back to normal. We're all going to enjoy this latest um, swell of interest in sea shanties that I've been seeing
4: online. Oh, wow. Well, that's uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. And it sounds like you have so many things up your sleeve. You know, myself and our audience will absolutely be keeping an eye on you and your progress. And one of these days, when I return to Wisconsin, which I totally fell in love with, I'm totally coming to visit you guys. And hopefully, it will be during the medal season. Colleen, thank you so much for joining Eat Your Heartland out.
6: This is Lou Bank, and before I ever went on any Agave road trips, I was taking daily trips on the G-Line, from Manhattan to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where I lived with a couple of my Marvel Comics co-workers. Where we lived then is about four blocks from where Duke's Liquor Box is located now. Where was Duke's in 1989? We sure could have used it back then. Back then, you couldn't even find decent beer. But now, man, now if I were thirsty for something obscure like, say, I don't know, a gin made with guava and passion fruit, I'd go to Duke's Liquor Box. Haitian Bitters, you thirsty for Haitian Forest Bitters? Hey, go to Duke's. How about Heirloom Tomato Eau de Vie? I didn't even know what that was in the 1980s. But Duke's? Duke's has that. Duke's has small-batch distilled gems like LA-1 whiskey, or if you want to drink like a druid, grab a bottle of their Glendalock pot still Irish whiskey, aged in sustainably harvested 140-year-old Irish oak barrels and ex-bourbon barrels. Or, what's that you say? Does Duke's have agave spirits? Well, of course they do! Duke's Liquor Box prides itself on their selection of fine spirits and wines, so you'll find rare, delicious treasures. Like Cinco Centídos Tobolá, Tozba, Pechuga Mescal, and Siembra Valle Ancestral Tequila Blanco, Duke's Liquor Box has everything you want, including a selection of New York spirits from their locals-only shelf. The only thing they don't have? That's a guy named Duke. So don't ask for Duke when you visit Duke's Liquor Box at 114 Franklin in the heart of Greenpoint. You can also shop online at Duke's Liquor Box dot com.